0: All right. We'll turn to our Master Text in the book of Proverbs, which is almost right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to be continuing the series that we began several weeks ago called Preparing for Christ's Return. And although our Master Text in that original teaching... Was Matthew chapter 25. We're not going to turn and read that again today, but I do want to refer to it very quickly before we read today's master text. And again, Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins, where it compares the wise, the five wise, with the five foolish. Five were wise and were prepared for the bridegroom's return and did what they needed to do to be well prepared for his return. The five foolish ones were ill prepared. And so that was the basis upon which we're um, building this series that we've been going through, preparing for Christ's return. So let's go ahead and read this master text, and uh, then we'll jump into this. So if you will, join me in honoring the Word of God by standing with me, if you will. And uh, this is, again, a little bit of a lengthier reading. I've been, for some reason, doing some lengthier master texts in this series, But uh, we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 20, which says, Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street she cries out in the gateways of the city. She makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will you mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I will in turn laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But this last part's for all of you. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. Well, let me give you a little bit of uh, backpedaling on what we've covered so far in this series. I've been talking about the seven signs of the prepared and unprepared for Christ's return. So let me give you where we've been so far and then we'll jump into the topic today. First of all, um, in comparing the two, the prepared and the unprepared, the prepared work to advance God's kingdom and are not wrapped up in their own little world life is not just only about them whereas with the unprepared life is totally given over to one's own interests and selfish pursuits the prepared have their affections set on heaven whereas the unprepared have their affections set on the things of this world the prepared we talked about this last week the prepared are committed to public worship and fellowship with the saints whereas the unprepared are disconnected from the church. And then what we'll be talking about today is that the prepared are lovers of God's Word, whereas the unprepared spend little or no time given to the Bible. So today's topic is the attentiveness to God's Word. People who are prepared for Christ's return are attentive to His Word. They're attentive to His Word. Let me just show you here in First Timothy 2.15. Um, it says to study to show thyself approved. I'm reading from the King James right here. Study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, I'm going to come back to that. That's the King James Version. I'm going to dissect that a little bit for you. But first, I want to state my mission here right from the start that it's my goal to ignite a passion in your heart today for the Word of God. To love it more than you love your favorite meal when you feel famished. That's my goal. And if you don't walk away from today's teaching having more of a desire and a love for the Word of God, then You can just go ahead and consider me a failure as a pastor. It's my goal to ignite a love in your heart for God's Word. And by the way, the reason that I'm licking my chops where this teaching is concerned, if I can get you to love the Word of God and to crave it and to consume it, then I know that you're going to undergo a metamorphosis and a transformation over time. And that possibility for you excites me. So back to 1 Timothy 2.15, again, studied to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now that word study there, as it's translated into English by the King James Version, is the uh, Greek word spodazo, and it means to make haste, hence to give diligence, and eagerness, and eagerness. Now, I also want to read this to you in one of the more modern translations in the Berean Study Bible. And it says, to make every effort. So, it doesn't use the word study there. It says, to make every effort. To present yourself approved to God. An unashamed workman who accurately handles the word of truth. So, we see a little bit of a difference in how the King James... Interpreted the first part of that verse versus the Berean Study Bible and others, uh, some of the more modern translations. So whether it's the word study or whether it's to make every effort, the directive here is pretty much the same. It's uh, to learn how to handle the word of truth with accuracy. And that's going to require that you study the word of God, to know it, and to apply it, and to teach it to others. And I know that uh, that last part there, um, teaching it to others, may be a little bit disconcerting to some of us. But, you know, that's how we reproduce in in the kingdom of God. That's part of how we reproduce anyway, is to be diligent to know the word and then to teach it to others. See, if we're well prepared for Christ's return, and He finds us being diligent when He comes or when we're called home in death, either way, then this is part of what it looks like. Knowing his word and allowing it to transform you, but also allowing it to transform others through your influence. See, that's reproduction in the kingdom. All right. Well, you're looking on the screen there at a picture of Sir William Ramsay, who was a highly regarded scholar of his day, a British scholar of his day, And I'll tell you more about him in a moment, but I want to refer to, again, 1 Timothy chapter 3 this time, verses 16 and 17, before I tell you about Sir William Ramsey. So it says, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work." Well, you know, it's one thing to make a claim like that. You know, the Bible makes that claim about itself, that all Scripture is inspired by God. So it's one thing to make a claim like that. But can that claim be validated? And that's where we come back to Sir William Ramsey, who was raised as an atheist, and also as a scholar and an intellectual and an archaeologist. He was convinced that the Bible was fraudulent. So he spent... 15 years of his career on an archaeological expedition in Asia Minor and Palestine, which is the land of the Bible, where his only purpose for being there for those 15 years was to discredit the Bible as inaccurate and unreliable. But in his quest to refute the Bible, Ramsey discovered many facts which confirmed its accuracy, See, he was particularly struck, by the way, by the accuracy of the ancient book of Acts written by the physician Luke, who was a first century convert to Christianity. And here's what Sir William Ramsay had to say about Luke, the physician. Look on the screen. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, This author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. That's what Ramsey said after all of his research. Now, that's not the end of the story. Ramsey went on to shake the uh, contemporary intellectual world of his day by declaring that he had abandoned atheism and that he was now a follower of Jesus Christ having found himself accepting the Bible as God's divine, holy word, divinely inspired because of the evidence of his uh, explorations and all of his discoveries. And he went on to write several books uh, defending the veracity and the reliability of the Bible. Now, the Bible has been attacked, by the way, again and again as being inaccurate unscientific, etc. But again and again, those claims have been overturned by the evidence supporting the Bible's divine origin. So can I give you just a couple quick examples of that? Did you know that the Bible was giving laws of hygiene God through Moses, who wrote the book of Numbers and the the first five books of the law? Um, That was thousands of years ago. But even at that time, the Bible was providing laws Of hygiene to protect against contagion way long before we ever even knew about germs did you know that we didn't even know that germs existed until about 1890 with the advent of the electron microscope did you know that some of the very first scientists who were even proposing that there were life forms so small that you couldn't even see them with the naked eye were considered insane they were called insane by their contemporaries I know that at least one of them was uh, put in an insane asylum where he died. And these were the scientists who were pioneering the whole idea of contagion and organisms so small you can't see them with the naked eye. Of course, that was confirmed with the electron microscope in 1890. Well, the Bible's been talking about laws of hygiene and protecting against contagion since the days of Moses 4,000 years ago. So that's proof that The Bible was indeed inspired by God. Uh, Another little example for you, and I could give you dozens, but I'm just going to give you two or three. Another one was that the Bible um, was talking about how the, the world is round, the planet is round, during a time when most of the people on the planet thought the earth was flat. You know, this whole idea about the earth being a globe didn't really start taking on its strength until the 1400s or so with Christopher Columbus. But yet the Bible talks about that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. It calls the, glo- the, the planet a circle, a globe. So that's another example that way before science ever started to catch on to this, the Bible already had that in its pages for thousands of years. And the last example that I'm going to give you is uh, prophecies about the futures, particularly the prophecies about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that has now been validated with scientific and historical evidence over and over again. Um, the book, uh, uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, if you've never read that book or seen the movie, I would encourage you to check that out because that talks about some of the evidence. Uh, also the book um, by... Um, Uh, See, Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Uh, That's another one. Uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. That's another one you can check out. There's lots of resources out there. And people like Sir William Ramsey are not the only people that have pioneered some of this research and gone into that research hoping to overturn the Bible, coming back as believers. Okay? Well... By the way, just one more example about the Bible's divine origin before we move on. And that's that the Bible was penned over a period of 1,600 years by 44 different men. Did you know that? And many of those men, by the way, didn't even know each other because obviously they lived in very different times. And they lived in very different parts of the planet But yet, miraculously, the Bible is a progressive message from God that fits together in perfect harmony. It's truly a miracle of God. So, the key concepts that I want to establish this morning as we get going here is that, first of all, if you neglect God's word, you're going to suffer for it. If you neglect God's word, you're going to suffer for it. Secondly, But attentiveness to God's word will lead to wisdom, fruitfulness, and avoidance of calamity. Fruitfulness, wisdom, and avoidance of calamity. Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36 says this, For whoever finds me, wisdom, finds life and obtains favor of the Lord. But he who fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. Now, God's word is there. It's provided by God, by the way, to provide the kind of guidance that will lead to your protection, your provision, your health, your success, and especially your spiritual well-being. To neglect God's word, therefore, is to neglect your own well-being, folks. But to consume God's word, to study it, To apply it to your life is to build a fruitful future. As an illustration of that, I want to tell you the true story about a school teacher who um, lost her life savings in a business scheme that was presented to her by a swindler. And when her investment disappeared, her life savings evaporated and her dreams shattered, she reported the incident to the Better Business Bureau. And uh, the Better Business Bureau replied to her by saying, Why didn't you come to us in the very beginning? Didn't you know about the Better Business Bureau? And she said, Oh yes, I've always known about you, but I didn't come to you because I was afraid that you would tell me not to do it. true story. See, the folly of human nature is that even though that we know where the answers lie, folks, in God's word, we so often don't go there, we don't turn to God's word for fear of what it will say. We also tend to plunge headlong into folly because it's what we want to do. While God's word is right there all along providing the warnings and the guidance so that we avoid the landmines of life. So on that note, let's read this passage from Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36 again. For whoever finds me, wisdom, finds life and obtains favor of the Lord. But who fa- who, he who fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. I also want to tell you another true story about a young man by the name of Glenn And Glenn was from a broken home, very dysfunctional, and uh, because of the turmoil in which he was raised, he grew up very insecure. He was never taught any good study habits in school, and because of that, and because of the family issues which continually plagued his home, his mind wasn't very focused on learning. He barely graduated high school, and from there he went on to work some menial jobs that didn't pay very much while... He tried to soothe his empty and aching soul with wild living. It didn't seem that Glenn was really ever going to amount to too much at all. He had no higher learning, no one to teach him how to prosper in life, and nothing but anger and insecurity in his soul that was not far from boiling over with the slightest provocation. But there was one thing that Glenn did have. And that's the heritage of being in church and being exposed to the Word of God when he was younger. He had a praying mother and a praying friend or two who were concerned about him. And one day, just tired of living the way that he was living, he repented of his sins and gave himself totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then locked on to the Word of God like it was his lifeblood. So from the very beginning, Glenn began to consume the Word of God, even though he didn't always understand entirely what he was reading at times, but he read and studied anyway, and behold, his transformation began. With no college degree and no professional experience, by the grace of God, he landed a job in, in the corporate world, believe it or not, in a career that he enjoyed and paid him very well and he was able to obtain a good wife of course another blessing from the Lord along with the blessing of children and a happy home life and after several more years of walking with the Lord and continuing to consume the word of God God called Glenn into ministry now this is a story I know very well because Glenn is me Glenn is my middle name now I have absolutely been transformed by the word of God But it's not been an overnight thing It's been a process Now I'm not implying here that I've become sort of, some sort of super saint By the way, that's not what I'm saying I still have all kinds of flaws You want to hear about some flaws? How much time you got? But see, it's because of the Word of God, folks, and my constant exposure to it, that I've come to recognize many of those flaws. Most of which I didn't even know were there before. How many of you know that the Word of God is like a mirror? When you hold it up in front of you, you you recognize the blemishes that you may not have seen before. You know, now that I've gotten older and I need readers... You know, sometimes I'll go into the bathroom and and look in the mirror without my readers, and I go, hey, you know, I look pretty good for 55 years old. But then one time I had my readers on, and I went to the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror with those those readers on, and I went, oh! Who is that old guy? I, I think that our vision gets a little blurry with age for a reason. It's helpful in some respects. (laughs) the Bible is a mirror that you hold up in front of you to show you your true condition not what you think you are but how you really are so it's because of the Bible that I've been on this process of transformation and have recognized some of those flaws that I need to deal with and by the grace of God and by his word um, God's been helping me with that transformation and dealing with those imperfections. So I'm not yet the man that I want to be, believe me. But I'm so far removed from the man that I used to be. And it's because of my constant exposure to the Word of God. Listen, I think that some people believe that just because they've now become a Christian and that transformation is just going to happen overnight while they sleep through osmosis or something... But it doesn't work that way, does it? God's way is this way, folks. Come to Him in repentance, and He will forgive you of your sins and save your soul just like that, instantly. And you don't have anything to do with that except just take it by faith. But the outward transformation, by the way, on the other hand, is going to come little by little, usually, as you avail yourself to His Word. So we're all on the process of being transformed, aren't we? Like the process that the butterfly goes through. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, you were transformed inwardly, spiritually, the moment you gave your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Instantly you were saved and forgiven of your sins and heading to heaven at that moment. But the outward transformation is usually going to come little by little. So you can put this in your notes. Transformation comes little by little, usually over a long period of time. And it doesn't come without effort. It doesn't come without effort. So, folks, listen, my transformation hasn't occurred overnight, as I said. Um, it didn't occur with a wave of a magic wand in a revival meeting. Uh, I know that God can and does sometimes work that way, but in my case, anyway, and I think probably most cases, it, Uh, With people. Um, Transformation comes little by little as we dedicate ourselves to knowing God's Word and then applying it to our lives. Are you with me? See, I know so many people who are looking for some magical zap from God. That will instantly change their character. And that's why so many people are attracted to these so-called revival services. And, and again, I'm not against revival meetings. I'm really not. Don't get me wrong. But I think that many people have the wrong focus in attending them. Listen, I grew up charismatic and Pentecostal. So I've been to plenty of revival meetings. Okay? Okay? And I've seen person after person waiting for some zap from God or some feeling to come over them so that they can overcome their vices or whatever. And many of those same people have no desire to be in God's word consistently and undergo the transformation that will occur little by little over time as they discipline themselves to consume it. And therein lies the problem. I just said a word that few people want to hear, and that's the word discipline. See, until you discipline yourself to be in God's word, you're never going to benefit from it. You're never going to benefit from it. It just sits on your shelf collecting dust. You're not going to benefit from it. I also want to make this very clear to you this morning that the quality of your faith depends on your intake of God's Word. I want to say that again. The quality of your faith depends on your intake of God's Word. Romans 10.17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The more of the Word of God that you get in you, whether it's through your eye gate or your ear gate, the more you're going to walk in strong faith. For example, I'm going to just give you an example of this. Religious tradition teaches that God will sometimes bring terrible calamity on people and wipe out their finances and uh, cause poverty in order to teach people character. But there's just one problem with that. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. It's not. See, if you need help in your finances, it'd be a good idea for you to study what the Word of God says about money and then start obeying those Principles because they are in there. They are in the Bible. And once you get God's heart on your financial situation, and once you start obeying those principles, then you can begin exercising great faith in those promises. I'm mean, making sense, okay? But you can't exercise faith. Listen, you can't exercise faith in what you don't know about. Hello hello, you can't exercise great faith in what you don't know about. See, if you've never read passages like Proverbs 11.25, for example, which says, a generous person will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. If you've never seen that in God's Word, well, you can't exercise any faith concerning money and generosity. Hello. Hello. Is that making any sense at all? So, you've got to know what belongs to you before you can claim it. Write that down. You can't claim what you don't know belongs to you. You can't claim what you don't know belongs to you. That's why you really, really need to know the Word of God. So you know what promises are there, you know what principles are there, so you can follow those principles, you see. And not just swallow any philosophy of man, hook, line and sinker, just because it sounds religious. There's a lot of religious tradition that are not at all based upon the Word of God. Did I lose you on that one? Jesus said, after all, to the Pharisees, they had a lot of religious tradition too. And he was pretty hard on them for their religious tradition that didn't line up with God's heart. All right, let's push on here. Well, you know, even enthusiasm without it being combined with wisdom is absolutely worthless. <laughs> you know, some people are excited, but don't, really don't even know why they're excited. You know, right? <laughs> I like that young lady that you see on the screen right there saying, uh, What are we excited about again? You know, that's, that's some people. They're, they're excited, but they don't, don't really know why they're excited. And I'm telling you, that kind of excitement cannot sustain you. That kind of excitement cannot sustain you. Proverbs 19, too. I love the book of Proverbs because it's got all these little short verses that are just like really, really great snippets of wisdom. Proverbs 19.2 says this, Even zeal is no good without knowledge. And he who hurries his footsteps misses the mark. In other words, if you're hasty, you're going to make mistakes. You need to pull the reins back and look at what the Word of God says about your situation. See, I see so many people in the Pentecostal and Charismatic persuasions. And again, I'm not picking on the Pentecostals and Charismatics. I was raised that way. That was a wonderful heritage. I got a lot of good out of that. All right? But I saw some inconsistencies and I saw some things that were not quite right as well. And I was, you know, listen. I was thinking about my upbringing and some of the things I saw and the Pentecostal and charismatic persuasions and the abuses that I saw. And I began wondering, why in the world did I get exposed to some of that stuff? And then... I got to thinking about God's sovereign hand on my life and how God wanted me to be exposed to some of those things and showed me some of the, the inconsistencies and some of the abuses. And now I'm glad that I was... Because, listen, I learned some very good and proper things in the charismatic and Pentecostal persuasions, but I saw some things that were very out of balance as well. And I, even though I don't believe I have all the answers, I've not arrived, God showed me and allowed me to see some of those things in order to arrive at a place of wisdom um, through his word concerning some of those practices. So again, I see so many people over the years in Pentecostal and charismatic persuasions who have a lot of zeal and enthusiasm, and I'm all for that, but a lack of wisdom, a lack of wisdom. See, enthusiasm without wisdom will cause you at times to make critical mistakes that may cause you to be disillusioned with God and the church and the Bible later. I want to say that again. Zeal or enthusiasm without wisdom and knowledge will cause you to make critical mistakes that will cause you a lot of pain sometimes, that may cause you to be disillusioned with the things of God later on. But if you can combine that zeal with knowledge and wisdom, you are on the road then of bearing much fruit. And that right there will make you a person who is well prepared for Christ's return. And to hear those precious words someday, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. You know, since I mentioned I like the book of Proverbs so much, there's another proverb that says that as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. I used to know a young man uh, in a previous church that I attended many years ago who got very excited during worship services, and there was a lot of outward displays of enthusiasm. But then he would go right back to the same vomit week after week. And it came out later that this young man had a terrible pornography addiction that his wife found out about, and he wasn't even that repentant about it when all the truth came out, and that eventually led to the demise of his marriage. Listen, I like seeing the combination of enthusiasm and wisdom, but... If I had to choose between the two, I'd, I wouldn't want to, but if I had to choose between the two, I'd rather see someone who sits through a church service like a stone but then goes home and actually applies the Word of God to his or her life and benefits from it than someone who gets all excited in church and then goes home unchanged. What in the world are we accomplishing by getting all worked up emotionally if it's not producing fruit in our lives, ladies and gentlemen? Look, folks, a lot of the time the excitement that we feel in church lasts about as long as the church service itself and dies down completely after lunch, after we get home. Come on now. I know you've experienced that. Again, I'm not against getting excited. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not against getting excited. As a matter of fact, I encourage that because the Bible encourages that. I believe it's right for us to get excited about our God and to get excited about our faith. Don't you agree with that? But listen, emotion cannot sustain you over the long haul. What we live on is the nourishment of God's Word. What we live on is the nourishment of God's Word. So, I'm going to talk to you about the transformative power of God's Word by giving you just a, a few rapid-fire passages for you out of the book of Psalm chapter 119. That's a really long chapter, but if you read that, I mean, it's just verse after verse extolling the, the beauty of God's Word. Psalm one nineteen eleven says, "I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you." If you're struggling with areas of sin in your life, hide God's word in your heart, so that you may not sin against Him. I would memorize God's word. Certain segments of God's word memorization is really important. Psalm one nineteen verses ninety seven through one hundred. Oh, how I love your law, David writes. All day long it is my meditation. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I discern more than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Don't you want to be wiser than your enemies? Wiser than some of your elders? Yeah. And then Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. If you don't want to know which direction to go, God's word provides illumination on your path. And then in Hebrews four twelve, it says, "For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges." The thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now I've quoted Jeremiah 17 many times before that says the human heart is twisted beyond understanding. Who can know how sick it is? The human heart is twisted and sick. We don't even understand our own intentions sometimes. We don't even recognize the wrong motives and the sin in our heart. But the Word of God will help us to discern those things because... It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why the Word of God is so important to your spiritual development. You'll you'll never even see some of the wrong intentions in your heart, some of the sin lurking there until you look into the mirror of God's Word. Now, I want to talk just for a moment here about the price of the Bible. Like I said, I really want you to begin to value the Bible. To love it. To appreciate it. You're looking at an artist's rendition there of the execution of William Tyndale. Some of you may not know who that is, but William Tyndale was a scholar in England in the 1500s. And during that time, the only translations of the Bible were available that were available in England were in Greek, which of course most of the commoners couldn't read Greek. So William Tyndale... He devoted years of his life translating the New Testament from its original Greek into English, which was considered a crime in that time and place, if you can believe that. Nevertheless, Tyndale labored on, even while being hunted, because they found out that he was doing this, though the authorities were hunting him. Even while being hunted, he labored on to translate the Bible from Greek into English. And he finished the English New Testament in 1525 while hiding out in Germany. A few years after that, he was betrayed by a false friend and turned over to the authorities, and Tyndale was then sentenced to be burned at the stake, which was commuted or downgraded to strangulation. So while he stood tied to a stake, William Tyndale was strangled to death, And then his body burned, all for the heinous crime of translating the Bible into English. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Well, that prayer was answered in part in 1539 when Henry VIII required every parish church uh, in England to make a copy of the English Bible available to all its parishioners. Why has the Bible been the center of such terrible persecution for so long? Never has there been a book so globally loved and so globally hated at the same time. Because there is a force of evil in this world. And it hates the pure word of God. Why hasn't the Quran been persecuted to that degree? Why hasn't the Book of Mormon been persecuted to that degree? Because the Bible is the true word of God. And the enemy is going to try to come against that thing with all of his might. There has been an organized effort to destroy the Bible for centuries. Yet somehow, miraculously, it still endures. All those efforts have failed. The word of God remains, but not without cost. William Tyndale is not the only person to have given his life for the sake of the preservation of the Word of God. Many people throughout history, some known and some unknown, have made similar sacrifices. So, what is the price of the Bible then? Look on the screen. The Bible you're holding came about at the price of blood. As a matter of fact, it came about at the price of much blood. Much blood. So after all the souls who have been sacrificed so that the Bible can remain, are we now going to take it lightly? Will we now sit, let it sit on our shelves like some decorative relic of times gone by? I want to show you a short video here in a second of some Christians in China receiving their own Bible for the first time. How many of you know the the Bibles that are so abundant, even in this room and in your homes, It's not like that in other parts of the world. Some Christians, if they get one little corner of a page of the Bible, they cherish that. So I'm going to show you a video right now of some Christians in China receiving their Bibles for the very first time. And then we'll come back and wrap it up.
1: That's
0: a little bit emotional, don't you think? The thing that I want you to really notice about that is that when that box was opened up with all those Bibles, of course they were all very excited and very vocal. But when they got those Bibles in their hands, did you notice the room fell silent? There was just an incredible reverence for what they were holding in their hands. And then all of them didn't even wait to get home. They sat down right there and began to read their Bibles. Isn't that amazing? How we take this thing that's so available to us so for granted And yet other people in other parts of the world would almost die to have what you have. And so often we let it sit on our shelves collecting dust and don't read it, don't study it, don't benefit from it. When other people in other parts of the world are craving it, would love to have what we have. Well, I'm almost done here, but I want to quote uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers during his day. And he said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. All right. It's my last slide. Why is knowing the Bible, craving it, consuming it, why is that a sign of preparedness for Christ's return? Well, because at the end of your life, you don't want this to be you. Look at the screen. Proverbs 5, verses 11 through 13 says, At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. Now, I'm taking this a little bit out of context, but not really. The context of Proverbs chapter 5 is warnings against the adulterous woman. And it's warning against not listening to your instructors, not listening to the Bible but going ahead and plunging headlong into sexual immorality and the destruction that that brings into one's life. But that can apply to many different areas of life. Ignoring God's Word, doing what you want to do regardless of what God's Word says, and then paying the price for it. That's what it's saying. So let's read it again. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. That's why this is a sign of preparedness. Because you don't want that to be you at the end of your life. Don't wait until you're old and staring death in the face during your waning years to recognize your need for God's word and the guidance of your teachers. Be humble enough to admit that maybe you don't know everything and that you need to submit yourself to instruction now while you still have some strength in your body and some years ahead of you. Cry aloud for wisdom and seek out understanding, Proverbs says. Because if you do, then you can face the return of Christ or the end of your life, whichever comes first, with peace and confidence. Now, I know that Julie has something planned at the end of service, but before I do that... I just want to open it up just very quickly here. We're not going to take a whole lot of time with this, but we've got the extra time this morning. So I want to open it up to any questions that any of you have. I know that some of you, especially if you're newer to the faith, you may have questions about how to read the Bible or when to read the Bible or what version or whatever question that's on your mind about any of this. Or if you have any testimonies or any comments, any insights along these lines, I want to hear from you. So is there any questions, first of all, that anyone has uh, on this topic today, anyone? Bueller, Bueller. A- anyone at all? No questions. Phil, I- I'll take your lack of response to mean either I was very thorough, or maybe you're thoroughly confused. I don't know. What book in the Bible would you recommend for a new believer to read first? That's a great question. What book of the Bible would I? Um, Recommend that a new believer read first You know I don't know that there's a hard and fast answer to that Phil But I actually like the question I will oftentimes recommend people read the book of Ephesians And the reason I choose Ephesians is because it's a short book Six chapters And the first three chapters of Ephesians is just doctrine You're just understanding doctrine And then the last three chapters of Ephesians Is instructions for daily living so you get, you get a little bit of doctrine, then you get a little bit of instruction. I love the book of Ephesians for that reason. So I think that's a great place to start. But, um, you know, again, some people start right at Genesis and start reading all the way through. I don't think there's a thing wrong with that either. Some people start at Matthew and start reading through the New Testament. I, I couldn't argue that that's a, a, a fine way to begin. But I like the question, Phil. Thank you, Thank you for that book. The book of Ephesians is what I'd recommend, but there is no thus saith the Lord on where to begin reading. Okay, that's just my opinion. What else? Anyone? Okay, uh, Don, I'm going to give you first, but since you're closer, Crystal, I'll get you next.
1: Why do you think there are certain... Groups that say uh, only read the King James, <laughs> and what's explained the difference between translations and uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Somebody said something. Well, not version, but sometimes they're just literal. They're, they're just a man's rewording of it.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. It's not. It's
1: not a literal translation. Sort of yeah. like the. My Life Bible or something like
0: that. Yeah, okay, that's a great question, too. These are good questions. Thank you, guys. Um, so, Tr- Crystal, I'll get to yours in a second. Um, wonderful question. Um, the King James Version of the Bible was completed around, some of you more knowledgeable about, about this may need to help me, I believe it was completed around 1600. Is that right? And um, there have been, the, the reason you see so many newer translations of the Bible is simply because its translators trying to um, improve upon the translational mistakes of the earlier translations. The King James Bible does have some translational problems. I still think the the King James Bible is a very good and reliable English Bible for the most part, but it does have some translational problems that some of the newer translations try to improve upon. Well, that aside, I don't think there's any perfect English translation of the Bible. Can I make that clear? There's no perfect English translation of the Bible because the Hebrew and the Greek are such broad languages that to try to narrow it down into our little narrow English language, you lose a lot. So trying to be a student of a little bit of Greek and Hebrew would would help you with your understanding of the Bible. And also, too, I always like to say that the best Bible for you is the Bible that you'll actually read. Okay? And I'm going to be honest with you. Maybe I'm just going to show my lack of intellectualism right now, but... I get lost in the King James Bible. All the these and the these and the thou's and the, the comeths and the goeths and I'm like, uh, huh? And so the new King James Bible is, a, is an improvement on that, but I've been a big fan over the years of the 1984 new international version. That's been my favorite one. Now, more recently I've discovered a version that I really like as well. That might be a really close second. And that's the Berean Study Bible. I really like that one. Um, because both of those versions are very readable. But yet they don't dumb down the English to like a sixth grade level. It's still a fairly intellectual read. Um, um, still on a fairly highly intellectual level. But it's still very readable. It's, you can get through it easily and still understand the Bible. So that's a great question, Don. I have some people ask me from time to time, do you all read the authorized version of the Bible? Well, you know what they're getting at? They're getting at the King James. The the King James is the authorized version of the Bible. Well, come on, folks. What do Chinese Christians read? If the King James is the only authorized version of the Bible, then too bad for the Iranians and the Chinese and the Iraqis and everybody else that doesn't read English. So, sorry, I don't really... Respectfully, would disagree with the authorized version of the Bible being King James. Sorry, that's my opinion there. Um, so the next one, um, Crystal, you had a question. Let me run back to you.
1: It really was a question. Just as a new believer, I started with Ephesians pre your request, and then going to John. Somehow, I got led into that, and I just loved it because it's when God walked on the earth before he ascended to heaven, so it's a good place to start.
0: All right, good deal. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Questions, comments, insights? Yes, Kim. Whenever uh, I first became a believer, I knew that I was missing out on the Word of God. And until I discovered the inductive Bible study method, uh, that just changed my life. And it's a study method that you can know for yourself what the Bible says. And it is so life-changing. Yeah. Inductive Bible study method? Mm -hmm. Uh, She's one of the ones, yeah, definitely. So anybody want any information on it, I'm your girl. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Good deal. Um, And by the way, there's these little thin Bible study guides that when I was young in the faith, I would buy these little study guides on the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. You can get it at any Bible bookstore. Uh, Sometimes a little bit more simplistic, but, uh, but sometimes you need that as a newer believer. And it just takes you through a book of the Bible and helps you to understand and contemplate some of the truths more deeply. So those are good things, too. Any other, yeah, Matt.
1: Are there any translations that you would advise not to read? Hmm.
0: That's an interesting question. I'm not sure how to answer that because there are some translations that I have read that um, dumb the English down so low, like to a fourth or fifth grade level, that it's just like, wow, you know, I I just can't even track with that. Um, So I end up rejecting them pretty soon in the process, Matt. so I, I don't know that I can really put my finger on a translation of the Bible that I would not read. But I can tell you this. There have been several of the more modern translations that um, I think do do an injustice to the original text. That's why I don't like, and I'll just go ahead and say this one, I don't like the 2011 revision of the NIV. That's why I stick to the 1984 uh, version of it, because I think it's, it's truer to the original manuscripts. And I think the 2011 version, they took way too many liberties on. And I think a lot of the newer translations do that. They take way too many liberties with the holy text. Now, there are some translations, some of those translations that I will refer to once in a while, and even some of the paraphrases, like the Living Bible. The Living Bible is not actually a true translation of the Bible. It's a transliteration or someone's paraphrase. That's not a true translation. But sometimes I will refer to the Living Bible or some of these other newer translations as a way to cross-reference, because sometimes they say things in just a, a much more clear way, and you go, oh, yeah, you know what? That really helps me. I, re- I, I get that. Um, I like the new, the new Living Translation, which is actually the springboard from the, the paraphrase, the Living Bible. The New Living Translation is actually, an, it is literally a translation, and I like the New Living Bible for the most part, but I have found some translational imperfections in the, the New Living Bible. Uh, even though, again, for the most part, I like it. But here again, there's no perfect English version of the Bible. That's why I hesitate to really zone in on a version that I would absolutely, positively stay away from because none of them are absolutely perfect. The only perfect uh, manuscripts of the Bible are the original Hebrew and Greek in which they were written. That's the only perfect ones. So I would just be a student of many different versions, and if you can get your hands on some study help along the lines of the Greek and the Hebrew, which if you go to Bible Hub. Dot com. Um, that'll help you with some of the Greek and the English words that you can get a little bit more elaboration on. Um, any other? That's a great question, Matt. Thank you. Um, any other questions, comments, insights? Yes, Steve.
1: Well, for one, when you were telling your story, I thought you'd been reading my mail. <laughs> so, anyway, I was kind of in the same situation, and um, I picked up the NIV study Bible after I decided, you know, this ain't working the way I'm living my life. So the thing about when you start reading the Bible and you're asking God to reveal things to you, there are going to be things that jump out at you and you're like, I've never seen that before. Yeah. So that's what's really important about getting in your word because he wants to share things with you, but right. you've got to get in his word to find it. Right, exactly.
0: Yeah, well said. Good job. Anybody else? Anybody? Other questions, comments?
1: Um, Regarding the English versions of the Bible, looking into the original, as you very wisely point us to, the reason for the number of the different English translations is that the original language is so robust that you can't capture it all in our language um the we do have like over time English changes, so King James was very understandable in sixteen hundred right what's it mean today i don 't know yeah you know so so i I struggle with you there, but if you go back to the language they were penned in, they were pinned in the language of the day when the when the Holy Spirit spoke the message they 're still very much alive and active, but you can't capture it all in English because that language is so robust and we're trying to like I don't know what you would say we're we're trying to like uh, fit a jet into our garage (laughs) uh, through through (laughs) the English language so that was my comment
0: yeah that's well said I I like that analogy trying to fit a jet into your garage is like uh, similar to narrowing the Greek and the Hebrew down to English very good anybody else All right, this has been good good discussion guys good questions